The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We've been talking about moral integrity starting last week. It's really a beautiful topic. But the, before we really see the beauty in the cultivation or the deepening of understanding of integrity, we really have to go beyond our notions of um, judgment. Like, I should be a better person. I should be a good person. Sylvia Borstein repeats a really funny story. It's probably been told in different ways many times. But it goes like this. Somebody is basically reflecting about how thankful that thus far today I haven't said any unkind words, I haven't been impatient, I haven't hit anybody, I haven't taken anything that wasn't mine. And then they reflect, but now I have to get up. (laughs) (laughs) And it won't be so easy to continue this skillful action, you know. And I'd like to end the day, you know, in, in a good place as I'm beginning the day. Therefore, you know, I undertake the training to live free from harming living beings, free from taking things that aren't mine, free from sexual misconduct, free from lying and speaking in ways that are harmful, free from intoxicating the mind in ways that promote unskillfulness, or whatever sort of guidelines you find useful to adopt for yourself. Those were the traditional Buddhist precepts for lay people. The commitment or the training in non-harming and non-stealing and not uh, acting with sexual misconduct, using speech in a way that's not harmful, and not intoxicating in the the mind in ways that increase the probability of being unskillful. But, you know, it's each of us have to reflect deeply because it doesn't really do us any good to pretend that we're devoted to a set of precepts. We have to make them our own. They have to make sense. And this is really at the heart of the practice of integrity, is it has to come from within. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. How does morality, ethical conduct, integrity, virtue, how does that come from within? And how do we make that transition from an external orientation? You know, I'm being good because I care about what people think about me, or I want people to think of me as being a good person, or I'm afraid of being thrown in jail, to this inner force that really comes from our own experience. So we're committed to non-harming, to this reverence for life, because it feels really good. If you weren't here last week, I, I suggested that would be really good homework for us to see if we can directly experience the joy of integrity. So to go from that being a should to like, this is something I want to reflect on, I want to develop. It feels good. It's a cause for joy. Anybody experienced the joy of integrity this last week? Can you think of a time where you just felt good about your thoughts, your words, your actions? 
like a, left a really good taste in your mouth, for example. Sets of whole, yeah? You want to share that, Kimi? just a beautiful simple example that you know instead of uh, like for example at the old center we had a little tea area in the basement some of you know who were there uh, we moved here like three and a half years ago and uh, eventually we got roaches and uh, that did make me happy so every night late at night I'd go down to the basement around the tea area and I'd catch roaches and you know yeah, but over time, and I catch them. I put them in a little bag. I put some old, some garbage that they could eat. I, I put it in a garbage can, hoping that they could get to the landfill or wherever, and you know, have a decent life. <laughs> but not in the house. <laughs> and eventually, now we got rid of them. But I, similarly to Amy's comment, you know, after a while, I started to feel really good about it. Before, early on, it was a big pain in the butt. To have to get up, to go downstairs, to catch, you know, to be careful not to harm them. You get the little yogurt container over them, you slide the paper, you flip it over, you know, you get it in the bag of garbage, you tie it up, you walk it outside, you, you know. Or if it was really, it was in the winter, this took a long time to get rid of these roaches. Uh, you know, in the wintertime, I'd leave it inside. Sometimes I'd leave it in for a few days until the guy was going to come, the sanitation department was going to come, so they, you know, just that there would be enough mass that maybe it wouldn't freeze, and I don't know if you can freeze a roach. <laughs> they seem pretty resilient. But anyway, but I noticed that I started to feel good. Like, initially it was a big pain in the butt, but then it, I realized, oh, it feels really good that I'm not doing the, easy, the so-called easy thing. It actually isn't any, killing is not an easy thing. It just on the surface seems like an easy thing just to kill the bug, the damn bug, you know. It shouldn't be in my house. It doesn't have permission to be here. It deserves this. Or we don't even think about it. That's more the, you know, we just, instead of blowing on it, like Amy was saying. So these are just little examples of the joy of integrity. Or when we refrain, you know, there we are with our buddy or good friend, and we've got a juicy story that we happen to find out about, and, you know, we notice the impulse to want to tell them. And then we go, oh, I don't really need to tell them this. I mean, it would be fun. We'd get a laugh or something. But it would be at the expense of somebody else. And we refrain. And 
there's a certain cleanliness to not having said that to that person. In the same way, there'd be a kind of a yucky stickiness if we did say it. I mean, we might have had a good laugh with them, and maybe on some level we might have bonded over the gossip, but it wouldn't have felt good. It would have felt uneasy in the heart if we looked, you know, if we paid attention. So that's a simple joy, just that simple act of refraining. And this is so much of the practice. It's really the practice of uncovering our conscience. We all have a conscience. conscience. Even, I don't know if you read the chapter of Jack Hornfield's book, he mentions this. I'll just read this section. So this is from The Wise Heart. And there's a chapter called the, the psychology, A Psychology of Virtue, Redemption, and Forgiveness. And it's in this last section in the book entitled Embodying the Wise Heart. So this is how we manifest wisdom. It's not just a means to wisdom, moral integrity. It's also a beautiful expression of, uh, of the practice of freedom. And this is what I mean by really being on the lookout for the joy. So anyway, in this section, in this paragraph, he's talking about how everybody has a conscience. He says, both aspects of conscience grow from an open heart, the ability to feel the consequences of our acts. Without this connection, we can cause great harm. <clears throat> Even sociopaths who are diagnosed as being without a conscience often feel that something is missing as if conscience is still there, behind the distant walls that have isolated their hearts. I recently read about a serial killer who described himself as the loneliest man in the world. Conscience recognizes the truth. It knows when we are acting with integrity and when we are not. Conscience is an aspect of the one who knows, our deepest innate knowing. Conscience understands that we are all in it together and that when we harm another, we harm ourselves. And I mentioned last week that even if nobody sees us acting out, you know, in some unskillful way, we know we've been unskillful. So the imprint is still there in the mind and the heart. So how is it that this conscience comes to be? How can we recognize it? How can we, in a sense, water it or develop it? And what is the dynamic of this conscience? So if it's not coming from outside, if it's something that is developed naturally, what is that natural development? And the Buddha made a big deal about this thing we in the West call a conscience. He, the Pali word or word or phrases rather, Pali phrase is kiriotapa, sometimes translated as uh, moral shame and moral dread, which doesn't seem a very useful translation because it really connotes a sense of like contraction in the mind. So another way that it's translated as wholesome regret, wholesome concern. But what it really is, it's a sensitivity. And the sensitivity is arising from the past actions that we have been awake to. When we're not awake in our life, you know, we're kind of living our life in distraction, 
we tend not to learn very much from wholesome and unwholesome actions that we're involved in. That when we are mindful, when we are awake, paying attention, connected, feeling what we're feeling, then inevitably, unavoidably, we're learning. And that learning gets, you know, it gets translated into this wholesome regret, wholesome concern. So when you're about to do something and you feel this wholesome concern, honey, are you really sure you want to do that? Where is that wholesome concern coming from? That inner voice that's saying, honey, do you really want to do this? What's coming from the past? Having seen similar actions many times, maybe slightly different in this way, slightly different in that way, but aware, somehow connected to the past. The past is alive as the conscience. The conscience is here now, right? It's not in the past. The past is gone. It doesn't exist anywhere. But in a sense, it lives on now as our conscience that understands, appropriately understands danger, wherever danger lies. So when we're in a committed relationship, you know, and then we're at work and somebody we work with we find very attractive, you know, we're interacting necessarily because that's part of the job, and we start to flirt or we start to sort of fantasize. And then it would be, you know, even if we've never had an affair or a terrible breakup in our own life, but just having watched soap operas or <laughs> romantic comedies or listened to our friends and their breakups, the voice, the voice of conscience will arise. Honey, are you sure? Are you sure you want to be fantasizing like this about somebody you have to work with? Are sure you want to be flirting in this way with somebody you're working with? Or is this dangerous? And it's not about being tight. It's about caring. It's really an act of compassion for ourselves and for others, of course. And in any case, we can't stop it. Conscience isn't something we do. It's something that's developed slowly, little by little, over the years of having paid attention to cause and effect in life. This is the fruit of being mindful of cause and effect. In Buddhism, this is foundational wisdom, you know, the very basis of wisdom. The foundation of wisdom is to have paid enough attention to the unfolding of our lives to have gained, it's really a momentum or a sort of a force. The Buddha calls it a, a powerful force of protection. It protects the world. It protects our heart. It protects the heart, other people's hearts. And the force of conscience or this moral integrity. And it really arises from being connected with our experiencing as we go through life. And that awareness of our experiencing, it lays down some basic principles like where there's danger, where, where there is safety. And so shame is neurotic when we feel the pain of regret, but we then proliferate around it as being a terrible person because I did that, or you're a terrible person because you did that. That kind of shame or blame or judgment isn't useful. But when we're at home late at night and we remember something we said today, and we go, oh, that was unskillful. That little 
that movement of pain in the heart that corresponds with the memory, it doesn't have to be neurotic. It can be just this very effective, efficient uh, piece of information. You know, as that memory moves through the mind and it delivers that punch, ooh. As long as we don't sort of construct a self who's bad, but we just receive the information, the ouch, because that's regret. Regret is a kind of ouch. But the way to see it is it's like beautiful, necessary information. We need that ouch. We need that message. Oh, yeah. Just like there are a lot of excellent documentaries that are very painful to watch, right? We may not want to know that, but it's good for us to know that. I remember back in high school, maybe some of you read The Jungle. Is it Sinclair Lewis that wrote that book, I think? Right? Upton Sinclair, thanks. Uh, about uh, you know industry, and I think in particular the meat industry, uh, slaughterhouses. Back, I don't know, maybe in the teens, the 19 teens, somewhere in there, before 1920, maybe. And uh, you know, you think it's bad now. <laughs> you can imagine what it was like then, with no regulations. And anyway. That's not a, even later. That's not an easy book to read, but it's really good to know about industrial agriculture, farming. It's good to know sort of how it all works, where the food comes from. It's good to know about the United States' foreign policy and the implications or consequences of that. Like what we do, what's being done with our tax dollars. It's good to know. All of these things are good to know, but it doesn't mean that information is pleasant. So it's the same way about a wholesome or moral regret. It's good to know about the consequences of our speech, the consequences of our thoughts, the consequences of our action. But it doesn't necessarily feel good to remember what we did back when we were a high school student. Joseph Goldstein, one of my main teachers, uh, tells a funny story about uh, being in a long retreat. Uh, and there, seemingly out of nowhere, a memory comes to mind when he was uh, like 16 or so years old. And uh, a girl had asked him to come to her sweet 16 birthday party. And he had somehow made it seem like he was going to go, but he ended up not going. And this girl, evidently, was crushed. So anyway, who knows, 30 years later or 20 years later, while Joseph is doing a long retreat, this memory comes up, and all that pain, the regret of being unskillful, arises. And he was amazed at how incredibly painful that memory was. Because, you know, with the powerful sensitivity we get when the mind quiets down, and that's what retreat practice does, or even a daily sitting practice does, it makes us profoundly sensitive. So one of the things we become profoundly sensitive to is this wholesome regret. It's like we can't kill a mosquito with, if we don't notice in the moment how it hurts to harm living beings. 
we'll notice it later in the day. The mind will be quiet, and then we'll remember, oh, that doesn't feel good. I remember, and I'm sure some of you other, maybe more of the guys than the girls, but who knows, you know, when we got magnifying glasses as kids, and it was so cool to see how you could, you know, heat up ants. I mean, it's amazing what we have done. And then when we remember, like, what that feels like now to know what we did back then. Why was that cool? You know, like, just that wholesome regret of having been ignorant. I mean, it was just ignorance. It's not personal. That ignorance, you know, that seven-year-old boy was not personal. But I feel it, right? It's alive. So we want that kind of moral sensitivity. We want to feel the regret when, if and when, maybe not if, you know, whenever we make mistakes with our thoughts, our words, and our actions, whenever we're causing harm to ourselves or others, it's totally appropriate to feel it. To feel it as regret and to feel it as concern, like concern about what we might do in the next moment. Like being careful. Just in the same way when we're walking, we're really careful. Some of you, I'm sure, have gone backpacking. And it's like so natural when we're walking, especially when we're top-heavy with a heavy pack on, you know, and we're walking along a precarious ledge. Like we're really careful. The attention is really heightened. And it doesn't do any good to get tight, but the mind is very alert. I was just talking to uh, one of our community members and one of the leaders down at the Northfield Buddhist Center, just south of us, Fred Howe, and he was in India visiting his son, and one of the things they did is they went up to Nepal and did some trucking. They went to the base camp of Mount Everest and, you know, some, some serious stuff. And he was thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to spend this amazing time with my adult son, great chance for connection. And he realized that when they were trucking, like most of the time, he had to be completely alert to where he was putting his foot. And not only that, because they were so high up, you know, it's like you had to bring so much attention to each breath because if you forgot your breath for even a moment, you'd lose your breath because of the high altitude. You just had to be so efficient in your breathing. You had to give it attention. Now we can, you know, at 600 feet or whatever we are here, we don't have to pay too much attention to our breath. But you know, at 15,000 or whatever they were, you know, you have to pay a lot of attention to your breath. So not too much chatting with the sun. But this is that kind of sensitivity where, you know, as we move through life, we don't have this flippant attitude. We realize that at any moment, we can make a mistake. Now, how to hold that sensitivity without getting tight? Like being on the freeway, for example, if you've never had a bad accident, you can be driving on the freeway in a very cavalier way, flippant way, you know, texting, <laughs> hopefully not texting, listening, you know, spacing out, doing whatever you do. But all you have to do is see or have a serious accident or even really reflect on how precarious it is to be driving at 70 miles an hour with people, you know, 10 feet that way, 10 feet that way, 20, hopefully a lot more than 20 feet this way. 
And then, then when you realize that, first you want to get tight, but you realize that doesn't help. And then, then you get really interested in this beautiful balance where there's just the right amount of concern, the right amount of sensitivity. Like I mentioned last week, for those who are here, this wonderful line from Ajahn Sumedho, you know, if you're not afraid of your actions, if you're not afraid of the consequences, really, of your actions, your thoughts, your words, that's no good. But if you're too afraid of your actions, your thoughts, your words, that's, not also, that's also not good, because you're just going to get tight. But what we want is just enough concern, enough regret, that it makes the mind, uh, brings the mind to this beautiful balance. You know, it kind of, uh, it's almost like it fills, brightens the mind, makes the mind alert. One of the things that happens with uh, meditators, people who've been practicing for a while, is they usually, not, not immediately, but if you're consistent enough, you will get really good at being tranquil, calm, beautiful states of mind. And what tends to settle in, without, if you're not careful, is uh, an indulging in the tranquility. And then eventually, the mind tends to become dull. Pleasant, but dull. Taking advantage of the tranquility to sort of, well, I don't really have anything to learn. Why bother learning? I feel so good. <laughs> and this can be a real trap for meditators. So if they have good teachers or good Dharma friends, then they'll hear about things, tricks that people do, like sitting outside with the eyes open instead of in a very peaceful place with the lights dimmed, you know, nice incense burning, so a pleasant smell. It's just like lulling them to a pleasant trance-like or unconscious state. But to go outside, or even Jack Hartfield tells the stories of, you know, monks sitting on the edge of a well in Thailand when he was a monk. So that if you fall asleep, you fall. <laughs> More than you fall asleep, you, you know, you might, because sometimes you probably notice this sort of nod. And if ever you want to see something funny, just open your eyes in a big group like this, you know, especially if you're facing my direction. <laughs> and in a big group, you know, of 80, 90 people, there's going to be a handful of people doing the nod in any given set. <laughs> where the, the sort of slipping into unconsciousness or that dull state and the whole body can collapse in it. So you see people, and then generally it's exciting enough falling forward that it wakes people up. So you don't generally find people hitting the floor. <laughs> it has happened, absolutely. I've seen people in standing meditation fall asleep and fall to the ground, which can be obviously dangerous. Because that's another trick. People will stand to maintain the wakefulness. So in the same way, you know, this moral concern it elevates the mind, it brightens the mind, because we realize that the words I speak now, I can't take back later. It will be too late. And if you're like me, you know, I had uh, my mother, uh, and you know, and maybe her mother before her, and, and on and on, back through history, you know, we were teasers, we're all teasers, we tease. And I have that tendency to be sarcastic, and to tease. Normally, now it's mostly my wife who bears the brunt of this, but every once in a while, even at Common Ground, it will leak out. People I'm more familiar with, 
I might tease you. And uh, sometimes, maybe most of the time, that teasing comes out of a real place of metta. It's just like uh, really sweet. But I notice that uh, if I'm I can get careless, and if if emotionally I'm a little off, irritated, impatient, or just have some pain, then that habit can be really pack a punch. And you know, for like example, with my wife, you know, I might be saying doing some teasing, but it's really like poking, and it's not hurting. So like. Just to, over the years, slowly, because these patterns tend to be unconscious, just becoming more and more conscious through having made a lot of mistakes, where I end up, ended up hurting people. And fortunately, you know, either the hurt was so obvious or the people had enough uh, courage to sort of let me know, hey, that, that didn't feel good. Or people who were around said, hey, that, that didn't seem right. I mean, this is really the advantage of having friends, good friends, that are unafraid to kind of share. Well, I hope you don't mind, but I just want to share what I saw, you know, earlier this evening, in case you're interested. And this could be really nice, because basically we're blind. Most of us are blind to these patterns until somehow it gets revealed to us. And then we can learn. And then we can begin slowly to change. And the concern and the pain of regret it sort of wakes us up. So then when we get in the vicinity of doing that, we notice that we're being a little bit loose with our speech, a little bit flippant, a little bit playful. That concern is still there saying, honey, be careful. This is the kind of situation where you say things and then you regret it. You know, you kind of poke fun, you know, in a familiar way, but it can be a little sting. And, and sometimes it's just, because you're misreading where the person's at. So words, you know, this is, this is, for most of us, this is the place where we slip and we really cause a lot of harm. The thing about developing this sensitivity, of course, it's, it's not about taking care of others, and it's not about taking care of ourselves. It's about taking care of both others and ourselves. These are not mutually exclusive like we sometimes think. There's a wonderful quote from one of the senior Western Buddhist monks in the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Jayasaro. He still lives in Thailand, but I think originally he's British. And uh, he has a wonderful line. He says, uh, when there is a conflict between our well-being and another's, it's usually a sign of confusion regarding the nature of well-being. And that's just a nice thing to hold. Like when we think it's about like either I've got to take care of myself or I've got to take care of another, that we should that that should be a red flag of like well maybe I should you know cultivate a little bit more sensitivity, a little bit more interest, reflection. Like, is that actually true? Challenge that notion that it's, it's okay that this is going to be harmful to them because I have to take care of myself. Now, some, I'm not, he's not saying it's never the case that in taking care of ourselves, somebody will be harmed. But, you know, it can be useful to distinguish something that uh, causes pain 
and something that's harmful. Because a lot of times there are good things that are painful. So maybe we do do something that causes somebody some pain, but our intention isn't to harm them. You know, we're just uh, taking care of ourselves and maybe taking care of them. But in any case, what's required is a deep sensitivity of wanting like this, um, you know, moral integrity, as we talked about last week, it's really about a reverence for life. And so the, the sort of care, it isn't that we're afraid of making a mistake, it's that we care, we're interested in taking care of all beings, ourselves and all beings, because it's a joy, it feels good. I want to end, before I open it up for discussion, with uh, a little bit from Gil Fransdahl. He's really he's one of the people who really emphasize the practice of moral integrity in our sort of national uh, Vipassana community. Some of you know that here in the West, as Theravada Buddhism, sometimes called Southern Buddhism or Classic Buddhism, because it it really focuses on the original teachings of the Buddha, as opposed to some of the other lineages that sort of have developed after the time of the Buddha, expanded after the time of the Buddha. Um, this tradition in the West is sometimes called Vipassana, or insight meditation. So sometimes people might refer to Common Ground as an insight meditation center or Vipassana meditation center coming out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. And Gail has really emphasized this because initially when sort of people like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and other of the original people in this, this lineage that we're part of here started to teach in the West, they emphasized meditation practice, of course, because that's, you know, people were interested in meditation. They weren't interested in sort of reflecting on non-harming. They were interested in, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, they were interested in having interesting, you know, meditation experiences, because that was the thing. And then slowly over the years, you know, we got interested in all the other aspects of the teachings of the Buddha, like moral integrity. And Gil was one of the people who's really emphasized this over the years. So he has this chapter in a book you can get online. It's called The Issue at Hand. It's a wonderful book of just different essays from Gil Fransdahl. And in the chapter on karma, he says, the Buddha said, what I call karma is intention. In other words, the teaching of karma is about the intentional choices we make in the present. The present moment is to be appreciated mindfully and relaxed into, as we do in meditation. But it is also where we choose how to step forward into the next moment. The more clearly we see the choice, the greater the freedom and creativity we have in making it. So it's not just about relaxing into the present moment. It's this heightened awareness that I was talking about, which allows for freedom and creativity. This sort of poignant, you know, it's like in the Tibetan tradition, it's this tipping point of the present moment where it's all about the motivation or the intention in the mind. Because this is at the heart of moral integrity. What is the intention in the mind? Is the intention coming out of fear, some self-centered, 
greed, self-centered neediness, aggression, aversion? Or is the intention right here and now coming out of love or compassion or peacefulness or joy? It makes a big difference. And he goes on and says that. He says, the present moment is partly the result of our choices in the past and partly the result of our choices unfolding in the present. Our experience of the next moment, the next day, the next decade is shaped by the choices we make in relationship to where we find ourselves right now. Intended acts of body, speech, and mind have consequences. Taking these consequences into account offers important guidance in our choices for action. But these consequences are not fixed or mechanical. Intended actions tend towards certain consequences. After the interactive field of causality, after all, the interactive field of causality is immense. Sometimes the consequences of our intended actions are submerged in the wide ocean of cause and effect. But even so, the world tends to respond in certain ways if we act with intentions of greed, hatred, and delusion. It tends to respond in very, uh, very differently if we act with motivations of friendliness, generosity, and kindness. So I'd like to open it up. It'd be very nice to hear from people. Any questions you have about the talk tonight? Any comments or reflections from your own practice would be nice to hear. Yes. Please say your name again. Jonathan. Jonathan. Um, this might be kind of a chicken or the egg kind of question, but um, I've been struggling with this in meditation in terms of uh, what my intention, what intention I bring to my sit. And um, is moral integrity going to simply arise from sitting and letting things come up, or do you have to bring that intention to the practice? Um, you know, in other words, thinking about the precepts and coming to the practice of those in mind, or do you, do you is it more that um, it's going to be part of our true nature through our sits for those things to just arise naturally? Yeah, it's a good question, Jonathan. So if you didn't hear the question, he's asking, you know, how basically how to support moral integrity. Do we want to reflect specifically on moral integrity, the precepts, the trainings, or is there another way? And the other way, and both, basically, the answer is both. On the one hand, the sort of brunt of the practice is just being interested in the present moment because it's not just the present moment, but the present moment, the present moment, the present moment, the present moment, because then what's going to happen is the mind is going to understand cause and effect. And that's how children learn. They observe cause and effect. That's how birds learn. We've taught our cat to scratch on the scratching post through cause and effect. We all learn through cause and effect. And that is supported by mindfulness, by being mindful, not just in one moment, but in a, with some continuity we learn to cause and effect. And that develops that moral integrity. But it's also very useful then to bring up moral integrity. Like, you know, when we reflect, like we do here at the center, once a quarter, we do the refuges and precepts together. Kevin, our program host, will tell you this coming Sunday we're going to have our quarterly precept and refuge recitation that we do at 10.30, and then we have a community potluck afterward at 11.45. 
And so when we, and I do this every morning, I, I say to myself, I'm undertaking the training to refrain from harming living beings. When I say that, it brings to mind that concern. Because what it's doing is it's activating all of what's been learned from paying attention to cause and effect. So that's the second half. On the one hand, we just want to be mindful as often as we can, as continuously as we can throughout our life. That's why we practice formal meditation, to be mindful in daily life. And then on the other hand, we can specifically bring to mind what we've learned. I've learned to revere life and to refrain from harming. I've learned not to take things that aren't freely given to me. I've learned to be very careful about my speech and to practice not harming others through my words. I've learned to be careful about intoxicating my mind. I personally don't drink because I've learned through many mistakes in high school and college and a little bit afterward, for a few years afterward, that it's very easy to do stupid things when I'm drunk or high. So I don't do that anymore because it's just so much easier you know, not to increase the probability of making mistakes. So that's really useful to bring up, to have that other reflection. Because then, basically, we're knocking on the door of that foundational wisdom. And we're activating, oh yeah, there really is a lot, there's a momentum to this concern and this regret. It's alive, literally, in our mind and body, the regret and the concern. And we can activate it. Just like I can do on the highway. You know, I'm driving, and then I realize, you know, these are heavy objects moving close together at 70 miles an hour. And I do not, I mean, let alone not wanting to cause my own death or harm, I do not want to be responsible, spacing out, and then be responsible for killing somebody or, or causing somebody pain or even hitting a squirrel unnecessarily. So, you know, I activate that heightened awareness. I bring, because like Ajahn Tomato says, if we're not afraid by, if we're not afraid of our actions, our words, our thoughts, we're not practicing correctly. If we're too afraid of our actions, our thoughts, our words, we're not practicing correctly. We've got to find that balance where there's enough energy so that the mind is clear and alert, but not too much of that that the mind starts spinning into neurotic, oh, I don't want, because then we make a self-centered drama about not wanting to harm anybody. It's impossible to go through life without harming ourselves or another. We won't actually get through life without harming, but we can be concerned not to harm in this moment. And then if we do, we practice forgiveness and we move on and we learn from the past. We take our wounds and we turn it into wholesome regret and wholesome concern so as not to do any more than absolutely necessary. But you know, we're not going to get through life without harming. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, all the way in the back. Um, nice and loud, please. She mentioned about causing, like children might think they caused their parents' divorce if you didn't hear. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and so part of 
Dharma practice, you know, this path of awakening is very therapeutic. You know, some of the same results somebody might get if they were involved in really wholesome therapy or just had a really good relationship with a wise friend that allowed them to kind of work through it will happen also in meditation practice and then just generally through cultivating mindfulness because those painful memories like thinking we caused our parents' divorce, as we as we develop more composure, more mindfulness, more steadiness of mind, then that old ancient pain, it's going to come to the surface. It's going to arise maybe generically as just emotional pain, maybe specifically as a memory. You know, oh, I did that. You know, I, I'm responsible for that. And the thing about uh, whether it's a generic feeling of pain or specific memory, we can relive it right then in the moment because however off the perception was from the past because we were young, we didn't have a lot of wisdom, our mind was simplistic, we drew conclusions based on little wisdom, right? We can, in a sense, relive because whatever it, it was, that mistaken perception was, it's alive in us now. So it doesn't actually matter what actually happened back then. What matters is what's alive in the mind-body now. So we let it play out. But now it's playing out in the space of wisdom, this wise presence, mindful presence, right? Whether it's just generic emotion, painful emotion, or painful emotion with specific memory, doesn't matter if that memory is accurate or not, actually. What only matters is are we able to see it with wisdom? Oh, the heart feels like this now. The heart is seeing this, thinking this, feeling this. Can this be allowed to do what it wants to do? It wants to move. That emotion, that pain, that content, the memory, it all wants to move. Now, if, we, if the mind out of habit grabs a hold of it, takes it personally, either takes it personally by thinking, I did cause my parents' divorce, or I'm an idiot for thinking I caused my parents' divorce. Both are unskillful. The only thing that's skillful is to let it move, to understand this is a feeling, this is a thought, this is a memory, and let it move. So it's like a ventilation of that pain. Then we're being really skillful. We're unskillful when we're in a painful situation and we hit back. And in that situation, the way we hit back is we take a hold of it and we blame ourselves, or we take a hold of it and we blame our parents, or we take a hold of it and we think, I can't handle this, and we get into some denial or distraction, shut down. All of those, in a sense, are acts of violence. We're hitting back. And then, then we're just perpetuating the problem. But when we have enough momentum in our practice, we're going to be willing to feel what we feel with mindfulness, with wisdom. And things will begin to unwind. This is a therapeutic healing, as well as leads to deep insight, spiritual insight, both. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yes, say your name. My name is Derek. Derek. Um, you were talking about how when people practice for a long time, they can start to dwell and practice like samadhi. Is that the yeah. right word? Like a yeah, pleasure. samadhi or concentrated state of mind. Yeah, or um, the mind begins to dull, usually like dwelling on pleasant places, get what I was getting at. Yeah, it gets identified with the pleasantness of concentration. And because it's identified, it's taking it personally, 
it feels personally appropriate just to relax into it. Like, what a great place to hang out. And then it's not like it's bad. It's just there's no learning there. There's no insight. Well, no insight will arise there. I was wondering if you could talk about how we can foster greater yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because initially, if you don't get too far into that habit, then the way to keep the mind balanced is when you start to enter uh, the, the phase where you're, you are experiencing a lot of inner happiness and bliss and tranquility in your practice, then you want to get very interested in pleasantness. You want to investigate it. Like, uh, just like we get initially, often right at the beginning, when people start the practice, if you're going to stick with it, you've got to get interested in pain because initially you're going to feel unpleasantness when you're sitting still. Right? We're just not used to it. And if we don't get interested in it, we're just going to be aversive to it, and then we're, not going, to, we're going to get frustrated and we're going to give up the practice. But if we can get interested in the pain of sitting still, if we can get interested in the pain of restlessness, or whatever other kinds of unpleasant experience you experience when you're sitting, then the interest will keep us in it. Then later, when we start to experience the pleasant side of practice, same thing, we've got to get interested in it. If we just indulge in the pleasant side of meditation practice, we'll slip into dullness and trance states. But if we can stay really interested in it, like there's this whole world of inner pleasant states from the more energetic, ecstatic, rapturous kinds of states to the more refined sort of qualities of ease to the even more refined experiences of stillness and inner peace. And we just get really interested in that. And then we get really interested in how the balance and the stillness really support, you know, because it develops profound quality of sensitivity. And then it makes it so much interesting uh, so much more powerful to investigate any state. So we'd like use that sensitivity from the stillness and the peace to get interested in everything else. So the traditional uh, method that Buddha would teach, he taught many, but the primary one he taught is like, if you can, develop profound states of stillness and sensitivity, and then stop and let the, let the sensitivity, let the concentration fade away Right into more ordinary states of mind, but that sensitivity then is used to observe the ordinary states of mind or the more ordinary states of mind as they begin to come back online. More ordinary neurotic states will begin to arise if we're not consciously supporting the samadhi, and then we get to see fear, we get to see envy, we get to see jealousy, we get to see boredom, we get to see doubt. But now we're seeing it with this profound sensitivity, and we get to see, oh, it's just a thought. It's just nature. It's not self. And it really supports insight. Yeah, thanks, Derek. Yeah, what's your name? Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel. So while it seems that 
Yeah. But the intellectual ability to understand that and the feeling, which I think would be wisdom, something like that, knowing what to do with that, very different. Um, simply to identify something as transient isn't to be able to simply excise that meaning if something happens to you. Right, right. And so I guess I'm not yeah yeah so I maybe I could see if this if this is a uh, appropriate uh, sort of restatement of what you said Gabriel that uh, you know things happen and uh, anything can happen anytime actually in some ways and in that world where anything can happen anytime where we're you know, other there are other actors all around us, and they can act in ways that actually have a very real impact in terms of pain or pleasantness. You know, how to be skillful. What do we do with that truth, in a sense? I mean, it's a truth that that not only that how we are <clears throat> has consequences, but of course how everybody else is has consequences. Well, what? How does that? How can we hold all of that? What is the appropriate attitude to have? And so you can just expect, well, I could get really frightened by that. Like, because somebody right now could stop, stand up, you know, we don't frisk people as they come in, and they could, you know, just start firing their gun right now at us. And uh, now, even though that probability may be one in, you know, 100 million or something like that, we could perseverate on that, that low probability, and we could get really, really tight. And that's pretty clear that that's not skillful, right? But, you know, on, on the other hand, you know, during flu season, uh, people, you know, have flus, and it's easy to pass it on. And, you know, the probability there that we're going to get a cold that somebody else has, you know, it's not one in one hundred million. You know, it's maybe one in twenty or something like that. And so it might make good. It may make sense to wash your hands as often as we can think of. You know, and it may make sense to sort of walk into the room and somebody sneezing and coughing to maybe sit a little far away from that person and to to respond. So that negotiation of living with insecurity and living with uncertainty, we see that the mind overemphasizing the insecurity and the uncertainty, it just leads to tightness. It actually gets in the way of a nimble and appropriate response. But being completely neglectful and unaware also isn't good. So delusion doesn't work and fear and greed, aversion and greed don't work. So that's that's what the Buddha taught. Non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. And that's how we deal with it. Because we do live in this world where anything can happen anytime. And to freak out about that doesn't actually help us live in the world where anything can happen anytime. And to ignore it doesn't help us live in the world. And the more we find that balance, the more a deeper insight arises, which is, in this world where anything can happen anytime, the things that are happening aren't happening to the person, a person, in the way that we imagine it is. But that's a different, more profound insight that gradually emerges with a lot of practice, with consistent practice. And that's a more profound freedom then. In this world where we're trying to be skillful, the ultimate expression of skillfulness 
is to not be concerned by karma landing. There's still karma, there's still cause and effect, but there's a freedom from being the person who's receiving karma. And we can't talk about that tonight because we're out of time, and it's hard to talk about anyway. (laughs) So we'll leave it here. Take a few breaths together and just let go of the words. And simply appreciate the wholesomeness of all of us being together, reflecting on these teachings together, and appreciating our spiritual ancestors from the Buddha's practice and his articulation of his practice all the way down through the generations of women and men practicing and sharing their insights to the next generation. Just grateful that it somehow lands in this corner in Minneapolis at this time and place and inspired to cultivate deep in our own practice to be part of the stream of wisdom and compassion that supports peace in the world and in our hearts. Wishing everyone a good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.